1 John chapter 3 from verse 19. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because he keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's command lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. We are from God and whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. This is God's word. Let me have my welcome. My name's Phil. I'm one of the ministers here. It'd be lovely to meet you afterwards if I haven't met you before. Let's pray as we turn to God's word together. Father God, please would you lead us into your truth. We long to know you. We long to have a relationship with the real God. And so we pray that you would do that for us tonight. Amen. You know, sometimes it really doesn't matter very much if something's true or not, uh, if something's genuine. Uh, There was a brilliant story this morning. I'm not sure if you saw it in the papers. Uh, The Michelin um, stars have just been re-awarded and a mistake was made. And then this place, which is basically a trucker's cafe in central France, was accidentally awarded a Michelin star. And so gastronomes from miles around have descended on this little cafe and were rather surprised to find that the plat du jour was a croque-monsieur and and nothing more. Um, And... uh, they had to apologise eventually, but the chef was very pleased, and they still got their certificate, so officially um, they were able to say, we are a Michelin one-star restaurant. Um, would you like a boeuf bourguignon, monsieur? And uh, it really doesn't matter. It was quite amusing, and a few people had a, a mildly disappointing meal. That's it. Other times, other times it really, really matters. There was a British businessman called James McCormack was sent to prison for 10 years a couple of years ago. And he'd made millions selling bomb detectors in Iraq. The only thing is they weren't real. They were novelty golf ball detectors, which didn't even have wiring inside them. They were worth about $2 each. But he packaged them in expensive cases and sold them to the Iraqi security forces. Now that matters. In all likelihood... There are mothers who lost sons, wives who lost husbands, children who lost parents because 
security forces didn't detect bombs because they trusted in these phony bomb detectors. People were blown to bits because they'd falsely trusted that they were safe. Sometimes it really matters whether something's genuine or not. Lives depend on it. Now, I think in our culture, we often approach Christianity as if it's one of the, it's, you know, the Michelin star kind of an issue. It's, you know, the most important thing is I develop a spiritual side to my life. Whether it's true in a kind of scientific sense doesn't matter so much as whether it it happens to be what works for me. The important thing is that I find a spirituality that that I connect with, that works, that makes me feel uh, more complete and integrated as a human. But that is a terrible mistake. See, at the heart of Christianity is the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ in history. But more than just that, in history as a sacrifice to pay for our sins. At the heart of Christianity is the message that there is only one way to be saved from the judgment of God. And that is by the sacrifice God himself has presented in Jesus Christ. And so it really, really matters whether we're trusting in the true Jesus or something else. Because he is the only parachute on the burning plane. He is the only lifeboat at the shipwreck. When it comes to Christianity, actually whether it's true and whether it's genuine really, really matters. But that raises the question, how can we know what's genuine when it comes to matters of spirituality and faith? How can we know what's true? Now, as we've seen, uh, this letter of 1 John that we're working our way through is a letter of assurance to people who've been left behind. Um, a group, it was you lot last week, so uh, we won't um, assault anybody's um, sensibilities this week. They've gone, so they're no longer here. The empty chairs at the back, um, they uh, have, have up and left. A third of the church have gone. And they've said to the people who are the true believers left behind, look, you're not the real article. God has given us fresh revelation. You are, you're missing out on what the Spirit is saying and doing in our day. You've been left behind. You're, you're not really fully mature Christians with the Spirit in you. And so the people left behind, you lot, us, we feel, well, we just feel a bit mundane and ordinary. And we wonder, am I missing out on, on the best that God has? Am I missing out on what the Spirit is really doing today? And so John has written to give them assurance. This key verse, chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Assurance is the subjective certainty of an objective fact. Okay, It's the subjective certainty of an objective fact. Those who trust in Jesus Christ are promised eternal life and forgiveness. Objective fact. Jesus gives eternal life and forgiveness for sins to anybody who trusts in him. Objective fact. Assurance is when I say, I know that I trust in Jesus and I know those promises are for me. That's assurance. And we've seen throughout 1 John that there are a number of things that believers can look to when we feel a bit wobbly, when we're, you know, I'm not really sure. Do do I really? Some of the stuff I think and feel and do makes, and some of the stuff that other people say to me, it makes me wonder whether I really am a Christian. And so in the letter of 1 John, he's told them a a whole load of things which will help them have assurance that yes, if you trust in Jesus Christ, you have everything you need. 
and God will look after you and bring you to eternal life. And the very last thing that he, uh, that he pointed to at the end of chapter 3, chapter 3 verse 24, the one who keeps God's command lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that God lives in us. This is how we find our assurance. We know it by the spirit that he gave to us. In other words, he says, if the spirit is living in you, you can be certain, you can be sure that you belong to Jesus Christ. Now the spirit, is the, he is the spirit of adoption in the Bible. He brings us intimacy with God. So in Romans 8, uh, we're told that it's the spirit who enables us to, to, gosh, there is this huge gap. There's me here with all my sin and my stupidity and just my finite smallness. And there is great God up there. And it's the spirit who enables me to believe that when God says in the Bible, I can call him father, that I can say, father, help me. I can pray to him. That's the spirit's work. It's the spirit who enables me to trust that the promises that the Bible says are for anyone who believes are promises I can hold on to. But that brings a problem because that's subjective. And the false Christians who've left the church, they say, well, the spirit tells us, the spirit tells us that you lot are missing out and that you've got it wrong and we've got it right and this is where the action is and we are the true people of God. So how on earth can you argue with somebody who says, well, the Spirit might say that to you, but the Spirit says to us something different? How on earth do you argue with that? How do you argue with somebody who says, you're really missing out. The Spirit is doing something fresh and different that we know about. And John, therefore, writes in this section two key truths to enable them to to really understand how you can spot false and true spirituality false and true Christianity. How you can discern between the claims of people who are frankly talking nonsense and those who are following Jesus Christ. And he wants them to know this so that they're not dragged away and so that they can help others to stand firm. And that's my prayer for us tonight. So firstly, the true spirit testifies to Jesus Christ, verses one to three. Now in these first three verses, John stresses two things. First, there is such a thing as false teaching. And secondly, the true spirit's teaching agrees with the Jesus of the Bible. There is such a thing as false teaching and the true spirit's teaching agrees with Jesus of the Bible. Verse one, dear friends, do not believe every spirit but test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Do not be gullible. The Bible is full of warnings that not everybody who stands up waving a Bible teaches the truth about God. Uh, Jesus said in in Matthew 7.15, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. They'll look like, speak like, dress like Christian ministers, but they'll be telling lies. Says the same thing in 2 Peter 1 or in Acts 20, terrifyingly, he warns them. um, uh, Paul warns the Ephesian church just as he's about to leave them in Acts 20 verses 29 to 30. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after themselves. False teaching happens and it happens in churches. In churches set up by the apostle Paul. 1 Timothy 1.3, as I urge you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you can command certain people to stop teaching false doctrines. It is not a popular idea in our culture where sincerity is really all that matters. 
But the heart of Christianity is not what I feel is true in my heart. The heart of Christianity is what Jesus did objectively in history. The facts. And so objective truth is crucial, foundational to Christianity. And because God is real and there are facts about him, anywhere there can be truth, there can also be falsehood. I remember having a really frustrating conversation with a good friend. Um, He'd bought a book. It was massively popular a few years ago. I won't name the book. Just be distracting, but um, supposedly Christian teacher. But most of what the the main argument of the book denied what the Bible said about God's judgment. And I I was really surprised to hear him say he'd he'd read it and enjoyed it. And so I I met up with him to talk about it. And I pointed out a whole heap of things that were wrong, probably in my usual gracious way. But I I pointed it out, and and he's. It was really interesting what his response was. He said, "But Phil, he wouldn't have written it if it wasn't true." And they wouldn't sell it in a Christian bookshop if it wasn't true. How can, how can it be wrong anyway if what he's saying is, is how he, it's true for him? If he really believes it, how can it be wrong? In his mind, it's just, no, Christians don't do that. They don't tell false things. But you need to have a functional category for false teaching. Do you get what I mean by that? In other words, false teaching needs to not just be a thing that could happen and might have happened back in the New Testament, but a thing that does happen. Or in other words, all of us need to recognise there are things we have heard in churches, there are things we have read online, there are things that have been said to us by other Christians that are not true. That should be no great surprise. And so John calls us, 1 John 1 verse Uh, chapter 4 verse 1 to test the spirits literally prove the genuineness by testing it that's what he tells them to do so how do you uh, test a Christian speaker or writer how do you test someone who says the spirit told me how do you test sitting there whether what I'm saying is true tonight well there are a number of tests throughout the bible but he focuses really on just one here it's not the only test in the bible but the one that he focuses on in verses 2 to 3 is this. Look at verses 2 to 3. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. Now that probably sounds a little bit eccentric to us. You think that raises more questions than it answers. But you you have to concentrate for just a minute. Uh, But here's what's going on. The general focus of the Holy Spirit's ministry is to testify, to teach, to point to Jesus Christ. That is a clear, consistent um, thing right through the New Testament. So um, as Jesus talks about sending the Holy Spirit in Acts 1.8, he says, I will send him to empower you to be my witnesses. On the, on the night before um, Jesus died, in John chapter 15, as he teaches the, the disciples that he's about to go, he promises them the Holy Spirit with these words, John 15, 26. When the advocate comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And so you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. So you see, the Holy Spirit's ministry is to enable the disciples who are eyewitnesses of what Jesus did to then teach authoritatively, accurately, truly about Jesus to other people. To write it down so that you and I can know 
who Jesus is and what he did. That's his essential ministry, to teach, to testify to Jesus Christ. And the specific thing about Jesus that seems to be being denied at this point by these false teachers is that Jesus came in the flesh, it says in 2 to 3. Or in other words, that Jesus was fully man. Now, I don't think that means that that's the only heresy. It just happens to be the one that's going on at the time. The specific thing that's going on here is that Jesus is being, Jesus being fully man as well as fully God is being denied. But the general principle he makes is to acknowledge Jesus is from God. So what you've got to look for is does what they say match with the truth about Jesus? The ministry of the Holy Spirit is to testify to Jesus. The specific problem here is the denial that Jesus was fully human, as is true. So the application for us is we are to reject any book, any teaching, any sermon, whether preached here or elsewhere, that contradicts what the Spirit authoritatively says about Jesus in the Bible. Now hang on a second, he never mentions the Bible. No, he doesn't. But that's because the Bible as a book doesn't yet exist. Many of the apostles are still alive. And so the authoritative teaching about Jesus that he's talking about is quite often being carried on verbally. They're starting to write down uh, the gospel accounts and write the, the, the epistles, the letters to the churches with the authoritative teaching as they die out. And it needs to be recorded authoritatively for future generations. But it's the same thing, whether it's the whether you have an apostle sat in front of you or an apostle writing a letter to you as we do today. Any teaching that claims to be from the Holy Spirit but which doesn't fit with what the Bible says about Jesus is to be rejected. Because the spirit who spoke about Jesus in the Bible isn't going to suddenly change his mind and say different things in our day. Now, clearly, the tightest application is is teaching about Jesus, about who he is and what he did. But also, it does mean that with any issue, with any issue, people who claim to be uh, speaking with the mind of the Spirit today, but who contradict what Jesus teaches, or things that fit with what Jesus teaches, are to be rejected. What does Jesus say about this issue? What does Jesus' example demonstrate? What teaching from the rest of the Bible does Jesus endorse? Those are the questions we should ask when it comes to sexual relationships or money or the treatment of refugees or our attitude towards those who differ from us politically. We go to Jesus and we reject any teaching which doesn't fit with the Jesus of the Bible. This book is the authoritative voice of the Holy Spirit. And so the better you know this book, the better you know the Christ at the heart of this book, the better you'll be able to tell whether the sermons you hear here and in other churches and the books you read and the things you read online are true and are driving you deeper into a relationship with God or are not true and taking you away. There's his first test. The true spirit testifies to Jesus Christ. Now, the spirit is a relatively new friend in, John, um, in John's letter to us. He first appears in 3.24 explicitly. But in verses 4 to 6, he's now going to take us to a, an old enemy we've encountered a number of times already in this letter. That is the world. Not the natural planet. It's not like he hates um, 
David Attenborough documentaries. It's the world is the, it's the, it's a sort of way of talking about humanity and our rejection of God. But because the, the human rejection of God is so prevalent, so widespread, so universal, John just talks about the world in its opposition to God. It's a tragic fact that you can use that as a shorthand. And he tells us that false spirits secondly fit with the world. Look with me at verse 4. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Now to a church that feels intimidated, slightly empty and rather weak, these are wonderful words of comfort. Don't be afraid, you have overcome. It's the future tense, uh, past tense of future certainty. You've already overcome. How can you say that when they're struggling and the church has been split and all these things? Well, because of the one who is in them. God is in you and so victory is assured. You have overcome. He is confident that they'll make it safely to the end. Not because they have a firm grasp of the truth, but because the true God has a firm grasp of them. And that is always the confidence of the Christian. That the one who is in us has overcome the world. Now the key point in this section, I think really comes in verse 5. They, that is the people who left the church and are claiming to be speaking with the Holy Spirit, are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. We, however, are from God and whoever knows God listens to us. What makes false prophets, false spirits, false teachers attractive? It's that they say things that are on trend, attractive, popular, relevant in our culture. And so the newspaper columnists, the bloggers and the opinion formers and the celebrities who speak out on social issues, they say of the group that have left this church, look, if Christianity is going to have any future in the Roman Empire, it needs to be like this because these guys, they speak something sensible, unlike those ridiculous lot who stayed in that church, who, who keep battering on about this nonsense about a Jesus Christ, a God who becomes a man. No, no, no. If Christianity is going to have a future, it needs to be like this. And because we love to be loved, because we love to be popular, a teaching that fits with the world and is endorsed by the world is very, very attractive to us. When God is small and people and their approval is huge, oh, we love it if what we say and what we believe fits with the world around us. And so we reject truth for half-truth, for lies and false teaching that is less uncomfortable and makes us less unpopular. Now, of course, the, the, the false teachers are not saying we need to bin the truth about God and say whatever fits in with our culture. They never put it quite that crassly. It's always dressed up in a spiritual language. We need to speak in a way that is relevant to our modern world. We'll never see young people come to church if we hold on to outdated teachings. We must be open to what the Spirit is saying to the church today. We mustn't limit God in what he can say. But the unspoken assumption behind all those popular catchphrases back then and today, the unspoken assumption is if the teaching of the church doesn't fit with the views of our culture, well then it's the teaching of the church that needs to change. 
The great danger today is that we decide what is truly Christian, what bits of the Bible are really important to stand on by how well they fit with our wider culture. In other words, we allow culture to judge the Bible rather than God's word, the Bible, to judge our culture. And that is the wrong way round. The world should not determine the belief of the church, if God is true. We follow a saviour at the end of the day who was hated by the world and put to death by the world. Why on earth would we think then that the world is going to love us if we're following the truth of that saviour? It's unlikely those same powers that hated and killed Jesus will love Jesus' followers. Jesus himself said on the night he, he died, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you too. We need to beware the danger of wanting to fit in with the world. And that's the reason that this teaching is so often convincing. This need to fit in, this desire to be popular is hugely powerful. And it often comes with arguments that we find it very hard to counter. So um, I guess those, um, those of us who call ourselves Christians here, you'll often have probably been in a conversation where someone has talked to you about being on the wrong side of history. Yeah, uh, and and you—it's hard. It wins arguments. You know, you, how can you believe that? It puts you on the wrong side of history. You know, the world is going in a different direction. But ironically, that phrase, which is, I think, one of the most powerful phrases of the world at the moment, it ignores both history and geography, which is slightly ironic. But it comes like this. You're sitting in a cafe in London, and uh, you're chatting with friends, and you're asked your opinion on red-button issue of the day let's say, uh, sexuality, and you say, yeah, I, I, uh, I hate all forms of discrimination and hatred. I follow Jesus. I think all people are made in the image of God and uniquely valuable. But if you want to know what I think about um, sex, I think that the Bible's right, that sex is for um, marriage between a man and a woman. And most of the people in the cafe, what? Don't be ridiculous and scoff and laugh. Now, a few of the old people might say, mm, yeah, that's, that's what we think. But the young people say, don't be ridiculous. That is so outdated. That is on the wrong side of history. And in a sense, they're right. Because in our culture, the tide has shifted. And actually, if you believe those things that the Bible teaches, you are left high and dry. You are on the wrong side of history. But imagine you're having the same conversation, 300 AD, in a cafe in the Roman Empire. I have no idea if they had coffee. Probably not. But hey, roll with it. You're having your grande macchiato in the outskirts of Rome and the same conversation comes up. You're asked your views on sex and you say the same thing. And the scoffing comes to you. But this time the scoffing's from the old people. Because you see, Christianity is now spreading like wildfire through the Roman Empire. It's 300 AD. And while there's still lots of persecution, the culture is changing because Christianity is just spreading everywhere and so now while the old people scoff because they've grown up in a culture where a man can sleep with um, all of his slaves if he wants to and, and homosexuality was was seen in a, in a much more positive light then the young people are saying well it may not yet be the law in our pagan empire but you've got to say if you want to be on the wrong right side of history it's going in a Christian direction see which history are we talking history has gone in different directions it's not just a monolithic movement. But likewise, you're ignoring geography as well, because let's have another coffee. We're going to be absolutely buzzing by the end of this evening. But this coffee is taking place today, but it's in Beijing. 
Now, in 1950, when um, uh, Mao started his, um, uh, the early 50s, when Chairman Mao started his crackdown on Christianity, there were less than a million Christians in China. Today, conservative estimates, 70 million. If things carry on roughly the way they are, by 2025, uh, Christianity will, the largest evangelical Christian country in the world, will be China. Sorry, 2050. By 2050, there'll be more evangelical Christians in China than any other country in the world. So you have that conversation in China, and which side of history is the right side there? Well, actually, things are heading in a Christian direction, towards a Christian morality. But actually, there's a far more fundamental reason that that argument that so many Christians find stops them standing on the teaching of the Bible. There's a far more fundamental reason that argument's flawed. You've got to ask whose history, ultimately. See, I have no idea whether Western liberal ideas about sexuality or anything else will win out for the next hundred years. But I do know that history is in the hands of the God of the Bible. And I do know that it is he who will bring human history to an end. And it's before him we will stand for judgment. And here's the thing. If you've got the choice of being popular and fitting in with the culture of the world today or being on the right side of almighty God for all eternity, what's the right side of history now? See, unless our culture is perfect, there will always be uh, ways and teaching that the world rejects, but the Bible proclaims. And there will always be things that the world endorses, but the Bible condemns. And so you and I will always, if we want to follow Jesus Christ, we will always be faced with that choice. If you're looking into Christianity tonight, you won't find a Christianity or a church which, which means you can carry on with life the way it is, And still follow God. It doesn't work like that. There will always be a disconnect. Unless you find a perfect culture. But unless a culture is perfect. There will always be points at which. The Bible will butt against. The values of of the world around us. Don't be fooled or deceived by the God of this age. As 2 Corinthians 4 puts it. It is the God of of the Bible. Who will judge human culture at the end of time. And only Christianity has the truest answers to the world we live in. uh, Of meaning, relationships, money, work, and ultimately of death. And so it may not be popular. But at least you'll be with truth. John pushes it almost further when he says in verse 6, We are from God and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Now, you and I don't get to say that. Let's be very clear. I don't get to say, whoever is on the side of God listens to me. Because John is an apostle. He is the authorized witness. We saw that in John 15. That's why Jesus sent the spirit on the apostles to, to make them the authoritative voices for who Jesus is and what he taught. But for us, it's will we agree with the words that this John teaches? The words of God. The 
a few years ago, I went to um, Latin America, and I got um, I, w- I managed to go to a, a football match. You, um, you've never seen passion or insanity. I'm not sure which like it. Uh, I was seeing River Plate play in um, Argentina, and my Spanish wasn't very good. Um, my wife says I sound like a Mexican peasant. Um, and uh, uh, I spent years working on that accent. And um, but I went to went to the um, I, my my vocab wasn't brilliant. And but I started to join in with the songs. And the guy from the church I was working for was with me, and he kept saying, "You can't sing that song." I said, "Why?" He said, "Well, the words are a little bit. I'd rather not translate them." Okay. And it turns out every every single song was basically a rude song about Boca Juniors, because River Plate and Boca Juniors are basically implacable enemies. And they live off their opposition of each other. And it turns out that it's the same. If you go to Boca Juniors, every song you sing on the terraces is basically just a rude, insulting song about River Plate. It's just the way it goes. Now, very occasionally, very, very, very occasionally, players have moved between the two. Uh, you have to have um, security. And you basically you live under death threat if you do move from one club to the other. But it's possible. It's possible to go from being popular with Boca supporters to popular with River supporters. Difficult but popular. Difficult but possible. I'll tell you what's impossible, and that's to be popular with both River and Boca fans. It is just impossible. Because everything that River stands for, Boca is against. And everything that Boca stands for, River is against. And the world and the church have always and will always disagree. It's why we humans put Jesus to death. No culture is so wicked that on every point it will disagree with what God says. But then no culture is so perfect and wise that it will align itself completely with the Bible. And you and I have to decide whose approval do I want, the world or God? You see, because ultimately it's not an intellectual problem usually in spotting false prophets and true Christianity. It's really an intellectual issue. It's a heart issue. Am I willing to stand up for what will make me unpopular? Or do I want to follow teachings which will enable me to fit in? I'm not saying the church should be deliberately unpopular and should be a time warp of fusty rejection of anything modern or popular. The music has to be from the 1950s. The minister has to dress like, well, anyway. But uh, the, the way we express Christianity should be relevant and shaped by the culture around us. But the Christianity that we express must be God's Christianity. The one the Holy Spirit speaks Through his word, the Bible. Christianity that is true, that is of the spirit, is a Christianity that is grounded in, that stands on and proclaims the word of God. No matter how unpopular that is. And it's a Christianity that's willing to reject what doesn't fit with this book, the Bible. You see, the wonderful thing is that the reason that you and I can have assurance, certainty, not just that Jesus lived and died and rose again, but that he did that for me so that I would be saved and I would have a relationship with God and I would be secure for all eternity. The reason that you and I can have certainty, assurance about that is that we have an accurate, reliable, true, certain record of who Jesus is, what he said, what he did, how he died, and that he rose again. 
We have a word in which we can stand forever, a word against which we can judge everything else, a word in which we can build our lives and bet our future. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you. We thank you that Christianity is not just an opinion, but truth. Father, we pray that you would give us courage not to be afraid that to stand by the Bible might make us unpopular. Father, we pray that we would be willing to follow the crucified Saviour who was rejected. But I pray that we would have the confidence of knowing that the one who overcame death lives in us and through him we will overcome. And so we pray we would be gracious and humble but also courageous and true. Amen.